Welcome to the Wolf Admin Podcast. Today I had a great discussion with Dr. Ted McElroy. We talked about private equity, the business accelerator program, and the Japanese business principles called Kaizen, which is the idea that your practice can always get better, but it will never be perfect. I had a great discussion. I really enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you will as well. And as always, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review and support those who support us. Today's show is sponsored by iCode Education. At iCode Education, we create and host high-quality, relevant, COPE-approved online optometric CE. We offer practice management courses from billing and coding, fee assessment, and chart auditing to clinical courses that focus on topics ranging from the anterior segment to the posterior segment to myopia control and neurological disease. Additionally, we partner with associations to help them provide their members and non-members with online continuing education at their own pace, on their own schedule. This allows our associations to generate non-dues revenue and provide a valuable service for their members who are allowed to obtain hours from distance learning entities. Check us out at iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. One more time, E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. Got all these things that are coming at us, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, there's, you know, then there's the VSP thing and uh, private equity in general, just, you know, everybody is so, so terrified, right? I guess the part that I keep coming back away from is I couldn't think of a more exciting time to be an optometrist and be in private practice because I hear over and over again, all these people who have been, you know, next door to a private equity purchase practice. They just knew this is going to be the end of the world. And every single one of them comes back and says, this is the best things I have in my practice. I mean, I've got more patients I know what to do with. I'm, I'm getting staff members that, you know, I've been jealous of my colleague for years and suddenly they hate where they're working and they're, hey, do you have a job available for me? And I just, you know, it, it's almost like they go from one extreme to the other and then they're almost to a point too where, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think I suffer from is people who people will die a whole lot more from indigestion than they will from starvation. <laughs> and, you know, there's just so much. And I think that's probably what is the biggest challenge with all of this stuff that's getting thrown at us right now is that we really don't know what to do. And we really haven't come up with a game plan of what our next steps are. That started hitting me really hard through my years at SECO. And then it, it, I kept thinking, well, after Seco's over with, this will get a lot better. And it, and it really didn't. It kept getting more and more. And so I signed on a program with a guy named Michael Hyatt. He's out of Nashville, Tennessee, called um, Business Accelerator Program. Part of it is teaching us how to do better with our time management. He sent me like all these books called The Full Focus Planner. And I've just started looking at it today. And there's like moleskin type kind of books to write down my ideas in. And then there's another, like a journal that I'll do. 
and they're all built on a quarterly type kind of process. I mean, I'm, I'm so new at this thing. I really don't, I don't know everything I understand about it at this point yet, but I'm still trying to get to it. And I think it's going to be really helpful for me trying self more focused. You know, do you think as you, cause you've been in practice a little bit longer than I have. Um, it seems to me that there's always something when we think about whether it's private equity or who's purchasing who or what, you know, um, what insurance plan is going to do this or what insurance plan is going to do that. And, and, you know, right now, you know, probably for the last four or five years, we've had the quote unquote threat of online and even longer than that with the sale of contact lenses online. But it seems to me that every year, the profession strengthens and we continue to move forward. So is there something different about what's going on right now? Or is this just part of the cycle that we get stuck in, in a pessimistic view of what's going on? Well, I, I think that's kind of our nature a little bit. I mean, most of us, probably if you were to look at a disc profile, a lot of us are more on the conscientious side of things than we are on anything else on the disc profile. And, and those typical people tend to be people who look for stuff that's going wrong. Um, I think I jokingly told a patient one many years ago, my job basically is to try and find something wrong with you and hope I don't find it. And I think that's pretty much what we do with our businesses, too, is we're always trying to find something wrong with it or with society and always trying to find something wrong with it and hope we don't find it. And, you know, I, I guess going back to a comment uh, a friend of mine made many years ago. He'd been in practice for probably about maybe 10 or 15 years longer than I had at that point. And so at that point, he was probably where I am right now. I'm, I've been in practice for 26 years. He said, you know, mm-hmm. um, as I look back in my career, things have changed a lot more in the last five years than they did in the first 20. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you five years from now, the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the technology. Things seem like it happens faster. And you don't have as much time to sit back and say, here's what's happening right now. But what does that mean for me? We just tend to become a lot more reactive instead of looking at what the real risk profile is and saying, okay, does this really, really affect me? It doesn't. Why am yeah. I worried about it so much? And I think that's part of our big challenge. I think we all try to decide what's really a risk. What is not? Yeah, I think when I think about it, I, I I definitely think you're right, and I think part of that is the age. You know, as you age in general, and this is what I've noticed is that time seems to go faster uh, because I have more perspective of I have more time behind me than I had when I was younger. So you know, just in general, when when you're 38 years old, you have 38 years of perspective. Uh, so, um, so time, so that 38 years doesn't seem very long. And so every day seems a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker and a little bit quicker, you know, as life goes on, that's just my kind of theory of why time seems to go faster as we get older. But I think the other thing is that, um, the, I think you're right. I think there's this idea of really good practitioners and I've explored this a couple of times on the podcast where. They're always sort of trying to figure out ways to do things better in their practice. So they're trying to enhance what they're doing, 
provide better patient care. And, and the ones that seem to excel a lot are the ones that can figure out ways to either take advantage of, of, of specific situations like in the marketplace, um, or they're ones that can kind of elevate themselves above those things that are taking place in the marketplace so that they don't worry about them like others would. And so they can focus their efforts on the things they can impact as opposed to being worried about what they're seeing going on uh, that isn't necessarily something that's going to be detrimental to their practice or isn't going to be something that's necessarily going to be um, uh, as big of an issue as they think, but they can take advantage of, of the marketplace when it presents itself. And that's really what, what I'm trying to, to kind of always be conscious of is, you know, trying to, I, my dad's done a good job of, um, I remember kind of when I came out of school, it was 2008, it was, uh, you know, the, the recession had started. And so there's this kind of gut reaction for me to always have in the back of my mind that that's coming at some point. And, and some of the stuff we had to do, you know, I'm trying to grow my practice in spite of, of having all these other pressures where, you know, people weren't going to come in and weren't going to. So, so what did we have to do in that period so that I could continue to grow my practice and not have to, you know, and, and still wind up with the practice we've built today. And so, um, so that kind of taints my, my perspective a little bit. And uh, is always like, okay, when's this next one going to come? Um, but at the same time, trying not to dwell on potential negatives. You know, Drew Bateman and I have talked about that a lot where it's, um, you know, you want to be aware of those things, but being flexible enough to, to adjust to them, I think is important. How, how do you, how do you do that? Do you do that consciously in your practice or do you, does that seem to just be something that, that better at over time? What do you think? Part of it is, you know, you go a little bit on the wisdom side of things. You start realizing that all this reactiveness isn't helping anything at all. Kind of funny you were mentioning how you got started in you know the Great Recession, but 15 years earlier when I started practicing, that was also the recession. Um, that was when everybody said, oh, you know, God, it's going to be a terrible time. And, and I look at those practitioners that started at about that time, and most of them have been really, really successful because they had to figure out a way to, to do it in a in sort of a very um, difficult time. And I think that's probably the thing that we all, we all try to avoid pain as much as possible. I mean, that's just a human nature, but what we don't realize is a lot of that struggling that we're doing is actually making us so, so much better. You look at all these businesses that made it through the great recession, see a, you know, a pattern evolving, this continuous improvement you mentioned earlier, that they've sort of got this Kaizen type of philosophy, the Japanese call it, which is their continuous improvement. It's not that they're ever going to be the best. They just want to continue to keep getting better throughout their life. Mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of what you see with really, truly successful optometrists, for that matter, any business owner, the ones that realize that, okay, it'll be so much better when there's no problems. Well, that never comes. There's always a problem. You know, there's, just about the time you think you've figured out where everything is perfect, someone comes in and quits or someone yep. says, my husband is not happy living. For me, it was almost three years ago. I had an associate who I just adored. I mean, she was 
not just a, a great doctor, but I really truly treasure her friendship a lot too. We, we shared an yeah. office. Um, she had worked in a practice situation where she had been in commercial practices for many years. It was her first time getting truly into private practice. She loved it. Her husband just said, I really don't like South Georgia and I want to be back close to my family again. Left. Hmm. The day that I asked her, I mean, they had been sort of struggling with this for a couple of months. And then they had gone off to spring break or something. And I said, when are you guys leaving? Kind of jokingly. And she just fell into this puddle of tears for the next 30, 45 minutes. I mean, I'm just trying to console her and say, it's okay. You know, it's just, you got to do what's best for your family. And, you know, and, oh, I don't want to, I said, I understand you don't want to leave. I don't want you to leave either, but this is your family. It's, you know, you got to, you got to do with that. And, and those things are constantly happening. And you start realizing that, you know, the last thing that like this didn't kill me. So this probably isn't going to either. Yeah, it's going to be tough. But I'll learn a lot out of this. I can take just mm-hmm. two or three lessons and move those forward. Think about where I'm going to be three, four or five years from now and how much more I've learned out of that, how much better I'm going to be. How much all these people who really rely on me on a daily basis are going to get out of that growth. I think that's where a lot of it comes. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. Do you think that's common? Do you think that a lot of people? I don't know. I'm, I'm just asking. Do you think a lot of people? Um, it takes them time to to be aware of it. Do you think there's a lot of people that just aren't aware of it? Because it can be so easy to kind of ebb and flow, or even just really even just get caught in the lows, as opposed to you know having get caught getting caught up in the highs and the lows. And you know, one of the things I I I think you're you're absolutely right. And I think kind of your perspective of of growing up in a recession, you know, your practice in a recession and and mine as well, is that I, I actually do have that perspective of like when things seem to be going really, really well, I it's not that I can't get caught up in how things are going well, but I'm I am not getting too caught up so that if things kind of take another turn, I'm prepared for that. And, uh, and then at the same time, when things are, are not going as well as I want, whatever that is, right? Like, and I think that kind of uh, spills over into life as well is that, you know, things aren't going as well as you'd like them to in, in something else. Having that perspective also lets you know that the cycles of life and the cycles of practice aren't going to always keep you there. They're not always going to keep you down and they're always, and you're not always going to be up. So it, it mitigates that, you know, if you think about like a, a sine wave, instead of having a sine wave with a really large uh, curve, um, really large amplitude in between that curve, we're just squishing that amplitude down. So we're keeping it as minimal as possible, maybe. And, and on the good side of that, I think it's it, it lets you it lets you not have to be affected as much by the externalities of our, you know, of our world. On the bad side of that is I find that, you know, the, the highs could be a lot higher probably um, than they are right now if I would let that, if I would let it happen. Uh, so I don't know. What do you think about I, that? I think you're on the right track on that one, Chris. Um, you know, the, um, I would like to say that I'm, you know, a perpetual optimist. I'm not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a lot. In, in fact, my, my team will tell you on a regular basis, I'm you know, not going around and telling them how wonderful the job they're doing. That a lot more often, but they, 
you know, I'm, I'm always, again, looking for all the negative stuff, just like everybody else is. One of the things I think that probably helped me out, and this is somewhat philosophical a little bit, but maybe 18, 19 years ago, I just stopped watching the news. I mean, totally stopped watching the news. I don't read the newspaper. I don't watch news. The only kind of news I kind of get, I want to call it that, is I listen to some financial podcasts almost on a daily basis. And they'll pepper in stuff that's affecting the economy. That's about the only kind of news I people think, oh, gosh, what will, what will happen if something bad happens, Ted? And I said, well, you know, they'll break into the Braves game and tell me something bad happened. And, you know, <laughs> and if it was really bad, then I'll do something about it. If it's not, I'll go, look, had an earthquake in San Francisco. And I'll just move on. Um, the, that, I think that's part of maybe my sunny disposition at times. I mean, but people will tell you, you know, they hear plenty of negative stuff coming out of me as well. But I, I wish I could, you know, say I've got it all down, but I don't. You know, I mean, I'm not the, I'm not that smart. I, <laughs> I, I know a lot of people who are smart. I ask them a lot of questions. I steal a lot of their ideas and I put them into practice. But I'm really not that intelligent. I think it's more of a survivor type kind of mentality than anything else. Well, I think there's a lot of people that that's the case. I, I always think the same thing about myself is that I, I'm good at incorporating ideas that other people have. And, and, I'm, and for some reason, I'm good at it. I do think I'm good at assimilating information um, from different places, whether it's the written word or, or audio. But, um, but I, don't, I, think, I, think, um, I think I've always worked hard to kind of, because I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm not the smartest guy around. So I feel like if I work hard in anything, then, um, and I pay attention and I focus, then, then I can kind of make up for a lot of those things that, uh, I struggle with. And, um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think, um, that is a huge, uh, you know, huge value to anybody. Um, when, when you think about, how you're going to run your practice. And, and that's, I think, one of the benefits of, of what we do at Vision Source is to get ideas from other really great people and, you know, and be able to incorporate them in a way that's trusting and, and, um, and beneficial to, to all parties involved as both the mentor and the mentee. You know, you, you were brought up that, that uh, friend that you have that is about 15 years ahead of you in practice. So kind of the difference in our, in our age gap and um, and that value to you. And then some of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about in the past and what we're talking about here is certainly valuable to me when I think about, um, you know, what's going to be, what's life going to be like in, in 15 years for me. Yeah. I mean, and it's very exciting to think about it. I mean, there's just, I, I was telling, told a couple of guests in the office a couple of times when they've in the exam chair, and I'm talking to him about what's going on with their eyes, and I'm showing him this picture from an Optimap, and you know, all of a sudden it sort of smacks me in the head. Somebody told me when I was in school that I was going to spend the majority of my day looking at images of people's retina taken with a camera with some lasers in it. I would have looked at them like they had a third head. I mean, it's just something we didn't think about when I graduated in 19. And you fast forward about 12 years later standing in Scotland talking to Douglas Anderson, the guy who actually invented mm. the machine. 
getting to hear his story and and meeting his son Leaf, who was the reason why they came up with this whole technology in the first place. You know, and a lot of what we again, it's a lot of the successes that we have are born out of adversity. We would have not come up with this yeah. idea had a son not had the rectal detachment you know, and realized, oh my gosh, we got to do something better than what we're doing right now. A lot of times, what we tend to do, we have these adversities hit us, we just go into chicken little mode and it's over. So I think part of it is yep. looking at it from a standpoint of, okay, how, again, how bad really is this? What can we learn from it? How can I apply that worthwhile to affect everybody else around me so they grow too? And I think that's one thing that Vision yeah. Source has done extremely well. You get people like, you know, Bobby Christensen, those guys who will sit down and, and your dad. I mean, gosh, I can't tell you how many things I've learned from your dad. <laughs> it seems like it's, your show turns into a lot of your dad stories, which is great. I mean, you know, but, I mean, truly, and I can remember you know, these people. My very first meeting was in 2003. Hmm. I remember the name of the hotel. It was the, oh, it was the uh, Lowe's Grand South Beach. We sat in one ballroom. You could address the stage from the back row without a microphone. Mm. I know that because mm. Bob Burns, who was sitting right next to me, did that. And it was a it was a real cozy atmosphere. The exhibit hall was basically another ballroom that had maybe 15 or 20 really good vendors for vision source, but it wasn't like it is today where we've got hundreds of, mm-hmm. of vendors. Everything from a by ten move to a massive thing like you see out of Marco, but the program there is just as relevant as it is now. If you look for what you need to see and what you get for yourself, you're going in there and not really knowing what you're going. It is like drinking out of a fire hose. You go in there with sort of a game plan. Amazing how much you can learn. If you go to our website, the right webpage, and you see what's on there, it's amazing yeah. how much stuff you can learn out of that and take back home. How many times I hear a member say, you know, I'm just not getting my value anymore. So what are you doing? And I'll hear, well, you know, I'm just doing all this stuff, but they're not really not good. Right. Not attending the meetings, they're not having conversations with their colleagues. They're they're basically isolating themselves from the world because they're too busy. That, yep. that becomes a problem for them. Yeah, how do you get to the point of not being too busy? I mean, because because you can you can certainly see that when you look at like the profit centers of what you do in your practice, um, you know, you're seeing patients. Patients are what are are what we all derive, and so when we, you know that's how we derive our income. And when we think about, well, you know, I'm this is my late night, so I'm not going to make it to a meeting, or you know, I've I've been just chugging along for the last month, just no no breaks because we've been so busy. Because maybe our you know our uh, my partner uh, is out of the office for whatever reason, or this or that. Um, how do how do you make time? What do you I mean, is it just something that's a conscious 
uh, thing for you or, um, you know, how, how do you, what, what would you say to that? I think I do. I think it is important that you schedule it. I mean, I literally schedule it. I'm, I'm guilty. My dear friend and idol, Mike Rothschild, a great American who you had on the show. Um, <laughs> he got me really excited about doing retreats. We did them religiously for a while, and then we sort of fell off because part of it would be that we started doing these other things got to be busy. When I stopped scheduling them, I started seeing a decline in our practice. Not just the money. I mean, the money was still relatively there, but the attitudes, the way people related to each other, the, it just really got nasty. In some places. And yeah. I started realizing yeah. people weren't talking to each other. They were talking at each other. They were talking about each other, talking to each other. I really got involved in their relationship. Part of it was bringing, so last Friday, we took the whole day off out to a location here in Tifton. A whole day working on things in the office that weren't going right. Thankfully, we're at that level where we can start going through our processes. They really like this to work better in an optical. Really simple, but they we don't really have a good safety glass program mm. optical that, that really is meaningful. We've been getting some stuff from Liberty, but it's not really great. And our, yeah. our opticians have been pushing me for the last couple of months. Something done with LEX. And I said, just get it done. Well, we need you to do this. I said, just call them. They finally make a contact, and we still get this sort of stall pattern. Started off our meeting with, here's some things that you emailed me over the last week. Get done. Here's what we identified six months ago would make a Dream Vision Source Tifton. Of those things that are on this list over here on the Dream Vision Source Tifton, how much of that could be resolved with a phone call? I got this sort of weird look, yeah. and I said, meaning you could pick up the phone today, and it would be taken care of by by literally picking up the phone. And one of the things that popped up on the on the list was two credit card readers. That had been on there for six months. No one had done anything about it. Yeah. And so we went through that list and we you know underlined it in a different color, highlighted some things that needed to have some time bound or more specific stuff. You know, instead of saying we want to be more organized, what does that mean? Breaking those kind of things. Yeah. We took that list. Yeah, I find. Yeah, so go ahead. We took, sorry, we sorry. Took that ahead. list and we made it a lot smaller. Took a lot of that stuff off and put it into place. That was like four or five things that nobody even emailed me about that we got eliminated on Monday morning when we got back to the office. We still got these other mm -hmm. ten things that we're working on over the next three months. I think you're so right about the idea of you know, a phone call can make, can make all of those lists. You can make a lot of your headaches a, a lot less. I mean, I, I always think about it like I can get swamped in emails and I'm sure everybody can. And sometimes you'll send out an email to some, somebody and I, I don't think there's anything as frustrating as sending out an email um, and then like five to 10 days later, or even like a couple days later, um, somebody responds. You know, I always try to respond to emails within, within the day 
um, even if I can't answer the question or um, or I don't have time to actually address what the what the issue was, I try to respond within the day. But the reason I bring that up is that what I've found is as I as I am getting busier, um, it it can be easy for us to it be easy for me to. I can see why people wouldn't respond right away is, is that it's like, oh, I'll just get to that later. And, um, and what I found is that to try to resist that temptation to get to it later or hit the snooze button on my email account or is, um, is to just continue the dialogue. So if, if for example, I get uh, a company that wants to come in and do a demo on a, on a unit in my office is, Instead of being like, oh, I can think about that when I get back into um, into the office on Monday or whatever, I will respond and say, "Great, what days work for you?" And so I'm I'm continuing the dialogue at that point. And so instead of instead of just like getting to it at some point, then it it means that I'll you know we can take those other steps of what we would want to have done, um, and it it makes it way more efficient because you're always sort of working toward something in that process. Um. So how did that all work out for you? You guys have, have squashed that list. Oh no, I mean we haven't got the whole list, and we, 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 I mean of the four or five things that we had that could have been done with a phone call, most of us gotten at least started in the process. Yeah, exactly. The other things. So then you you brought up Mike Rothschild. The um, so are these are these kind of tactics that you guys refine with Leadership OD, um, and then it's easy to kind of get away from it, or is it, um, you know, tell me about that. Um, well, you know, my involvement with Leadership OD was kind of, we've got to, I may have to backtrack a little bit and I apologize for the history lesson on this one. That's good. Yeah, that's right. Um, many, many years ago, Mike, Eric Kushnevez, and I, Carl Spear, met at SECO to start our first meeting of a study group. First Seco right after the Acapulco meeting that no one ever wants to go back to. Great meeting, but it was a nightmare <laughs> getting there, but otherwise it was great. And that was sort of the first time that we had a chance to all meet together in one place. We also sat down and talked about it. it. was At that time, it was really more just to sit down and let's have some idea sharing and see what comes out of this. That sort of became a study group. Built from there. Other people, April Jasper and her husband David came in. Hoven came, added uh, Dave Lipinski, his partner. Later, meetings later, Mick Clean. The neat thing with Mick was I had a connection with Mick because he and I were classmates at SCO. I had actually called him a few years before when I was first. Some reason just timing didn't work out right. I had also talked to Pete's partner, Kenny Young. Well, I still refer to him. That's where he was in school. I think all of you people call him Ken. But we had talked, and he was already in a study group, and it was it was pretty big, and he wasn't one of the framers for it, so he didn't have the luxury of at that point the invitation. So I said, You should just do right. one. And I right. said, Okay. So that's when I started out. And I knew Mike and I would be able to do it because we're here in Georgia together and we had EOA and also through business. So we were sort of trying to figure out who was going to be that next person. Got Amir in, then we got Carl, and we kept adding these people. What I found out after doing these study groups was that was the 
best part of my entire year were those two meetings that we would have. Hmm. Sit down for hmm. a day and a half, just literally talk about these gut-riching things that were happening in our practices, whether it was money or team problems or just, oh, I got this great idea. You know, Pete would come in and say, we just did our trunk show, and it wasn't quite as good as it was last year. We only did $50,000. We're all, mm-hmm. our eyes were popping out of our heads. And start to share those kind yeah, of 50,000 bucks. disappointed about it. <laughs> I take that. <laughs> so, you know, we're all talking about these kind of conversations growing. And, and every one of these meetings we had, have at one of our offices. Not only do we get a chance to go and meet and talk two or three hours, literally go to one of the offices, watch the operation. And mine was the last one that we did. I don't know if it was by design or really, I think I'm basically Tiffin's kind of geographically undesirable, not easy to get. South Georgia. A lot of major airports close by, so Mike did a sort of a carpool from Atlanta, brought a bunch of people down from with him. And I had sort of talked about Tifton as a small town. Talk about small towns when they all get here, thinking, "Oh God, this is great! You've, you've been telling us how terrible it is." I mean, I don't think I was ever saying things were terrible, but you know, it, it just wasn't as exciting and sexy as the big city kind, and. We're walking around and looking at things, and every time we go to somebody else's offices, we learn something new. These little small things like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you put that instrument right there. And I know that sounds silly. You've been trying to figure out how to make the flow in your office better. Literally take something as easy as moving one instrument from one room to the next. Changes things. That, that's huge. The study group thing became really big for us. Out of that, Mike one day had said, I've been thinking about this thing that would really work out well. I've even got a name for it. It's called Leadership OD. What we're going to do is we're going to have this program that people are going to go online, and for eight weeks, they're going to dive into what's going on with their practices. They're going to become their own consultant. And that was this first leg of Leadership OD. And he worked with a guy, Asher Lewis, who helped develop the program. I don't know if you were around for this, but Doug Hansen did this program called Metamorphosis for us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, that was one of my first years that out of, out of in Asher practice. Built, the pro, built that online program that Doug had done. I contacted Doug. Okay, if we do something kind of like that for optometrist. It's not going to be just for various and source. It's going to be for uh-huh. optometrists. And Doug said, absolutely. Doug is one of those guys, and I know you probably remember this. He is a real big believer. He thinks that there's plenty of ground for everybody. He doesn't live in this reality. And I think that's one of the things I really admired about what he did. Mike believes that too. That's something that's also rubbed off onto all of us in that group as well. That morphed from online program to literally putting on program, doing yeah. those, and it just kept growing from there. My involvement was that level of it. Yeah. 
I always think it's interesting when you think about the, um, you know, the connections that everybody has. You know, I, I wasn't aware until I talked to Mick. Actually, I knew Mick and, and, um, and Mike were, you know, were involved with Leadership OD. And I knew Amir was, but I for, had forgotten that Amir was. And then I, I um, you know, until I talked to Mick, I forgot that you were involved in it as well. So it's like all these connections with people I have a ton of respect for. And it just opens minds like, oh, yeah, that that makes sense. That's why they're all awesome is because they, they kind of were thinking through different situations together and um, and, you know, working toward those goals. So then, um, so then I guess, you know, uh, Ted, it's been a few years since leadership OD has been, you know, was kind of sold to rev. And then now it seems like Mike's, um, you know, in my conversations with him, uh, I'm not sure maybe he's told you more. I'm not sure exactly where he wants to take it now that he has it back. Um, but, but what have you done since like, I mean, obviously I know not like, what have you done since this, but like, like, what is your been when you're focused now that the leadership OD was kind of, um, you know, sold and then, you know, what has been your main focus within kind of helping other people and cultivate those cult that culture and those ideas among other people um, that you've been focused on over the last few years? We've got a great profession. We've got a lot of people in this profession who have, I guess I learned, I, can't remember, I wish I could remember who said this, but they don't give back, they just give. I think that's philosophy I started trying to live by. It's not trying to give back because I'll never be able to give it back. And I've gotten involved with different levels of optometry, whether it be the politics side of things from our state associations. And I got involved in SECO. I'm involved in the administrator structure, the advisory board now for It's real rewarding because I get a chance to hope give something need something. Yeah. Again, it's out of the abundance that I've got giving to them because there's gosh, we I just got so much. I really do, and I mean I don't mean that in a money kind of way. I mean again, I've, sure. I've, you sure. just mentioned all these people. Again, I'm not that smart. I hang out with people who are smart. <laughs> learned a lot from them. If I can take some of that information and pass it along to somebody else, it's going to make them so much better. And I guess that's where some of my focus has been. Sort of circling all the way back to the very beginning of the conversation we had about private equity error right now that's going on through our profession that private practice is going away. It's not. I think that private practice optometry is in its golden age. Been in its golden age since its inception, and I think it always will be. There will always be people who don't want to be owned by someone else who would like to make their own decision, be fiercely independent, but at the same time want to stand arm in arm with their colleagues and create something wonderful. That's what Vision Source is. And for that reason, I've always been excited about what all was going on with Vision Source, even before I got involved. Because I think that we we really are going to be the organization that saves up. Yeah, I think, you know, I was having a conversation uh, the other day um, 
and well, I've had these conversations multiple times over 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 periods of time, and the um, you know the private equity thing. You know, Jeff Crone and I just—I mean, probably over the last month, I've discussed it three or four times on the podcast, and it—it's just. Um, it, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around the significance of it. I, I, I think on the one hand, I can't, um, I can't fault a doc for you know when your practice gets so big and it is so expensive to, to offload. I cannot fault somebody for for doing that. And um, and yet, uh, if you think about private practice, how does it continue to develop if? you come out of school with a quarter million dollars in debt and um, and you want private practice, but you can't afford to enter into another private practice. You know, you might be able to be an, an associate in a private practice, but you can't afford to actually purchase a private practice, let alone even start, you know, a private practice in most. And I guess that's a perception that a lot of people would have. So how do, how do you, how do you marry that? that mismatch. I know we've talked about, or we have vision source next that's been really helpful for, for people, but there still is, there still is that perspective that, you know, it it is, and not just a perspective. I mean, quarter million dollars is a lot of money. And, um, and and then you got a a practice that's for sale that, that might be a million dollar practice or a $2 million practice or more. How, how do you get those people into those practices? That's a great question. Um, you know, that's this is the question that we've been fumbling around with since I graduated from optometry school, too. I mean, I think that that hasn't changed really that much. The numbers gotten bigger. I think they're getting bigger than inflation is getting. But at the same point, we're going to have to start looking back to that giving thing I talked about at the very beginning. There was an optometrist in Alaska, Florida, that my dad, my dad's a printer. Now you start getting these connections in life. I had a friend he grew up with in high school that lived in Palatka, Florida, which is not about two hours away from here. And the optometrist getting ready to retire, his name was Robert Mitchum, the actor. And he was trying to see what he was going to do with his practice. Well, just like me, Tipton's not exactly the place that people are just dying to come to. And well, what they don't realize, though, it's a wonderful opportunity. Small town practice is amazing. You can do so many things that you can't do in a big city. Because all those things that you said you wanted to do in school, there's a specialist right next door to you that does that really, really well. Either you got to be better than she is, mm-hmm. or you have to do something else. Small town, you can do a lot more things. The... A big fish in a really small pond, yes, but there's still a lot of great things that come out of it. Well, Mr. Dr. Mitchum knew that as well. Around for years and trying to attract people, he had mm-hmm. his fantastic practice that at that time probably would have been too money to buy. Started looking at what he had. Met this kid who was, I mean, I never got a chance to meet the doctor that bought him or in his practice. Brought him in for a year and just say, I want to, you know, I want you to come and check this out and see what you Worked with him for a year, and then at the end of the year, he said, I can't think of anybody I'd rather have to take care of my guests. I would like you to take my practice. He said, take. He meant, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you my practice. Mm-hmm. He had gotten everything he ever wanted in life out of 
had more than he would ever need to live on for the rest of his life. Practice part of what he had. I mean, yes, he did lease out the buildings. Let him decide what he wanted to do with the equipment. Did he want to buy the equipment at a, at a fair price? Or did he want to, you know, something else that was newer and better? He would let them sort of work that out. Mm-hmm. The practice itself. And then the key and said. And hmm. about 10 years ago, there was a doctor 20 miles up the road from me, 75, named Jack Green, who had been in practice forever. He was wanting to enjoy time. He, he was in his late 70s and had been practicing. And he called me up one day and said, Hey, Ted, I've got all these patients. I would like to retire, but I don't want to leave them high and dry. So what I would like to know is, would you take care of me, my wife, in your office as patients? You also take care of my guests. Hmm. Gave me all his records. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of us that could do that. Maybe it's not the whole practice. Maybe it's a big chunk of it. Talk about sweat equity a lot of times. People who are really struggling to pay their loans and all this kind of stuff. But they're helping you build this practice. Put a dollar of value on how much they grew that practice. As I'm saying this, I can already hear the gasps across the, you know, you know, from people, oh, I, you know, saying, oh, no, oh, yeah. I, you know, built this. But what they don't realize is that baby that's theirs probably isn't quite as valuable as they think. Yeah. Comes right down to it. Really important. Is it the fact that you got every dime out of it you could possibly squeeze out of it? Or is it the fact that all these people who have given you so much all those years? You got to choose who it was that yep. takes care of them. Your dad was fortunate enough that you came into the practice, and I've got a son who's going to optometry school, and this special oh, person cool. decides that that's they want to come back here, and he practices here. Great. In fact, he and my associate are already having conversations about what they will do. They hope that works out. I really do. I think they'll be great if that works out associate but um, if they come back here and they're helping me build this practice they got to get something more out of it than just having yeah yeah it, 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 it is um i will tell you so what's really interesting to me about what you just what you just said is that it it is that is actually the realization I think I've I came to the exact same one that you're talking about now, which I'm sure you know you've you've thought and talked about a lot about it. Um, just a couple of days ago on a run um, with a buddy, kind of exploring uh, how do we make it so that private practice continues. And I think that's it. I mean, I, I look at I look at what my you know what what my dad did to to help me get to the point where I can can buy in more to the practice. And part of it is, you know, um, uh, an appropriate valuation. And part of it 
was, you know, getting me, getting the sweat, sweat equity and something out of that over time. And I think it can be easy to say, well, you know, of course I'm, I'm a son. And, and so, but I really think that that is going to have to be how, how at least it doesn't, have, like you said, it doesn't have to be the entire part of the practice. Certainly I, I don't, don't get an entire part of the practice, huge, huge part of the practice, but, um, but that sweat equity was worth something to that and it, which binded me to the practice. And it also, um, it also rewarded me for the efforts that I was putting in to help develop the practice. And, um, and I, I think, you know, unless hopefully, you know, unless you, you're just com- completely banking on, uh, your retirement being the sale of your practice, um, which I can understand that there would be people that would do that potentially. Um, the, the way that you keep private practice private is you actually care about the future of the practice when you're not there. And, um, and you have to think about that a lot, a lot earlier than, um, than you think you're going to have to think about it. And so, uh, so I, I, I agree. I, you know, I, and, but the hard part is, okay. So then, so I say that, and then the hard part is, is thinking, you know, I'm going to have to be as generous as that that guy you're talking about, I'm gonna have to be as generous as my dad has been um, when that comes when it comes time to do those things. And then you realize, like, well, maybe am I being generous or or am I going to be selfish? You know, or, or I mean, selfish isn't really the the word, but but selfish in the sense that is is private practice bigger? Is it bigger than my practice? You know, is the is the ideas that I'm espousing? In terms of truly believing that patients are better cared for that way, um, is that worth whatever X number of dollars uh, to turn it over, at least in some part, to somebody else? Yeah, and I think also, um, you know, you had Darren Wright on the show quite a, a while back, and he had talked about some things that they were doing in their practice to try and mitigate some of the expense. And I think those kind of things need to be investigated a lot. Thoroughly, probably by Vision Source. I don't know if we in looking at those kind of things. That would be a really nice piece. The Vision Source next. Now, um, Goldman Sachs has gotten some bad press. I think they actually have a program that helps out with student loans. Hmm. Other, uh, yeah. other financial institutions that do those kind of easier for an employer like me to say, I'm going to help you out with your student loan. Be part of what we're going to do for you. Here in my small town, the way the hospital recruits doctors is they you know, offset their student loans. A huge mm-hmm. benefit. Especially coming to a small town, it might not have been on your top list, and now suddenly, thousands of dollars a year you're going to get to put in your pocket instead of loan back. Yeah, those kind of things can be helped out. You know, maybe that's the way private practice. Maybe you're not going to get that from a yeah. commercial practice or a private equity practice. Well, I don't know, but those are the kind of things we're going to have to look at to doctors in our areas and. Like me in a small town, it's going to be even harder. A half years to replace a D that I loved that left to move back to Texas. I've got to realize that those gaps that I have in my practice are going to be a lot bigger than they're going to be in a small, in a bigger. You know, Leslie Gallagher, she was, um, she's done a lot of research. I, I should reach out back to her again, or, or actually with as, as the advisory board, um, it might be good to, to touch base with her because I remember a year or two ago, she had looked into there is a company that actually helps small businesses do that, do exactly what you're talking about in a way that you know is helpful to bind the the new associate to the practice and and is also you know a tax benefit and all those other sorts of things. So that might be um, that might be a good place to start in terms of seeing 
you know, other relationships we might be able to have and develop. I can't remember the name of the company, but um, she was really excited about it. Um, so, so let me, uh, so Ted, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Mike is when are you going to do a podcast of your own and, and what does that look like in your mind? Well, actually, um, you and I have sort of talked about this a little bit and the, it was funny how, how that kind of worked out. I was listening to the episode you did with Mike <laughs> almost immediately picked up the phone and called you and I said, Hey, um, I've been, you said something to Mike and it sort of struck me and I wanted to sort of talk and kind of get your permission first before I did this. Cause I don't want to step on your toes. And you were like, why don't you think you're stepping on my toes? I mean, you can do what you need to do. I mean, it's not a problem. It's not like we're competing, but which was very generous and I appreciate that. But absolutely. Um, you know, so uh, then you offered and I'm sort of throwing you under the bus on this one. And you offered <laughs> me to sort of come in with you on this podcast. And uh, I've, I'm really excited. I mean, I've bought, uh, sent me this great list of stuff I needed to purchase. I bought it all. I haven't played with it yet, but I've got it all. And um, and now I'm just trying to find a space to actually do this thing. The first thing I'm going to write in my new full-to-focus planner that I just opened up today is going to be start, or excuse me, do two podcasts in the next three months. And hopefully that's going to be a goal I can take care of, and I'll set all those things out get that down the road but i'm really excited about the opportunity with this thing it's amazing you said earlier it's amazing how many people we know a lot of it has to do with vision source they say that's easy i think a lot of people that we need to be discussing some more challenges very much like you did with the abb talk you did is mm. industry in here to talk about yep. what's going on with optometry yep because they are looking so much farther down the road than we are. we're looking maybe five years out of for lucky they're looking 20 or 30 years down the road where their business is as a yeah. private practice, or is it even going to be here anymore? I think having some of those conversations with the executives of those companies, people like Millie Knight at Essilor, Gibson, Algan, having those kind of conversations with these people. What do you see? Where do you think that's going to happen? How can we take advantage of some of the things that you see? We're not trying to fix it. We're just trying to figure out how we can make it work in our framework. We're trying to get it working. That's where I see things going. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about the opportunity. I. You know, I, I know you've probably heard Drew Bateman on the podcast here as well, and um, and so we we sort of had another channel um, that we were working on, and it it really Drew and I had have had conversations about this as well. Is that rather than kind of put stuff out on on a separate channel, we would just keep it all on the same channel because of the listenership that that this channel has, and um, and kind of grow that underneath that same umbrella. So. Uh, I think just bringing additional ideas and, and additional content, and it'll be it'll be great. I think our listeners will love it. Yeah, we have we had a little bit of a delay on my internet. I've, again, I'm in a geographically undesirable place. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we had a maybe maybe this thing gets to be like sort of like the Motley Fool, where there's five different podcasts under the same umbrella, you know. And yeah, I mean, I think that's so far. I think that um, that could be something that really works well in terms of time management for everybody here, and also to give people. So they're not just hearing me every single week. They, they get to hear, you know, other people with other ideas. And um, so I think it'll be fun. So, so uh, with that, Ted, thank you very much for being on the call and, uh, and having this conversation with me. I look forward to more of these conversations in the future and, and uh, exploring where all this goes. Thanks. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed it.